Well, let me start first by thanking you all for, for coming, not only to this session, but also Pain Week in general. Uh, one of the themes you're going to hear last night was a wonderful keynote, is we need to pick up our game. Steve was very nice in not really saying that, but that's part of it, is we need to be doing better. One size fits all sort of treatment. This is a complex issue, it's a complex treatment, and we need to be more careful about what we're doing. And I think you coming here um, shows that you're interested in upping your game and improving your skills, and that's wonderful. You probably know practitioners in your area that you think ought to be here that didn't come. And so at least I'm glad you're here. Um, so we're going to talk about this. Um, I have too many slides. Payne Week said, you got too many slides, you need to cut these out. And I said, no, because I'm a poor editor, I'm just going to talk faster. So I'm going to talk as fast as I can and get through more slides than I should have for, for this. Pain Consultants of East Tennessee, we're an American Pain Society Clinical Center of Excellence. We're trying to do it right. We're a private practice, not owned by a hospital or anything else, but we've had a commitment for a number of years to try to do things right. Um, I have a contract with Ethos about a, the, one of the risk assessment tools. Um, <clears throat> learning objectors, we're going to talk about some base rates, how you know if your patients are behaving the way you want them to behave, some general principles about ending opioids, when to, when not to, and also some about risk assessment tools, because they're not all the same. Um, if I have the title, I have to have the lyrics to it, you know, <clears throat> Home by Eight, Just Me and My Radio, Save My Love for You. Um, <clears throat> I would get the audio, but I think I have to pay royalties for that. Wouldn't you want patients that did exactly what you asked them to do? They inform you at visits about what you need to know. They don't call after hours and say, oh, by the way. Uh, they collaborate with you appropriately before outpatient procedures. You know, how are we gonna, what are we going to do about post-operative medicines? Uh, or when they're seeing other providers, they have appropriate drug screens. They have appropriate pill counts. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, you can there are always going to be troublesome patients to deal with, but you can decrease the amount of problems you have in your clinic. Um, it's psychology. We need to shape behavior, and we need to teach people and get their behavior, and there's reinforcement principles and educational principles that we can use to bring them in what we think of as our line, in line with what we have to be doing these days. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to talk about that. Now, you know people that say, well, I don't know, why do I get all, why am I in these kind of relationships? Why do I attract those kind of guys? Why do I attract those kind of girls? Why do I attract those kind of patients? Okay, yeah, it might be you, not them. And so you need to look at you and what you are expecting of patients and how you present from the front end. So first, you look at your practice, you know, who, who is seeking out, and we'll talk about marketing. We'll show you some marketing strategies that we use in East Tennessee. Uh, about a mile from my house. <clears throat> I mean, really? <laughs> Would you pick a cardiologist based on that? Oh, yeah, heart stents right here. I'll call it, sure. I mean, they could barely get the T in before they did it. And like I say, that's just a mile from the house. Um, <clears throat> um, now, you need to go, hmm? Oh, yeah, that was real. Oh, yeah, there, yeah, yeah. In, in fact, these are the altered slides because pain week... Uh, Pain weekends blotted out those phone numbers so that you wouldn't be calling, finding out who their marketing person was. You know, hey, they got a great marketing thing. Now, what you need to do is up your game. So you need to go to the print shop, and and get it printed, and then stick it in the ground like that. That's a mile from my house, the other direction. Um, that that's a step up. What kinds of patients do you think those practices are going to get? Okay, so it starts from the front end. So expectations are important. If you act like a reputable practice, you're going to get more reputable patients. We quit calling ourselves a pain clinic. In Tennessee, you've got to be a registered pain clinic and have a license and all that kind of stuff. 
And so we are a, technically a pain clinic, but we say, no, we're not a pain clinic. We are a medical practice that treats pain. And we all use that same language. And to elevate how you think about yourself. So if you think about yourself as a professional practice that's treating pain rather than, oh, yeah, we're a pain clinic or I'm a pain doc, I think that starts the, starts the stage. So with referrals, you want a lot of referrals from neurosurgeons, orthopedists, specialists, rheumatologists, and primary care. You don't necessarily want a lot of self-referrals proportionally, or you certainly don't want to make that your main focus. It's nice to have self-referrals, but if you get sucked into the ego-gratifying, I've traveled a long way to see you. You know, I've heard you're the best, and I have to travel a long way. My friend, cousin, uncle, aunt says you are the best. Um, No one else will help me. No one can help me. Psychologically, you know, that's a real setup, and medication-wise, that may be a world setup as well. Uh, But if you have a large percentage of self-referrals, you need to think about your practice and how you're doing that and why you're doing that and what sorts of folks. And maybe you increase your risk assessment tools and increase your monitoring. Maybe that's for your niche. That's the thing you want to do. But that's the thing you want to think about. So the more you can integrate yourself into the medical community. We had a pain physician in our area. He was about an hour outside of town. He moved to the big city of Knoxville. So he moved down, and he moved into an old house in a historic neighborhood, and, and then was very puzzled when the neighbors were up in arms and called the zoning commission and had all kinds of problems. And he said, I'm a reputable pain doctor. I, I do some Suboxone treatment, so I have some addicts that come in too. And the neighbors were just furious, and they stoned his house a few times and all kinds of other things. And he looked genuinely puzzled, like, I'm a reputable guy. And it's like, you set yourself up. If you'd put your office in a medical complex, you would do less, you'd have less problems with that. But he got a nice little homey thing that he was very happy with, uh, but caused a lot of problems, same sorts of things. So you look at your office environment. Now, you know, you all can't go out and rent new space based on this, but it's something to think about. You need to think about what kind of physical environment, because that's the same thing as having a sign out. If you have a nice storefront, you know, in a strip mall kind of thing, um, you got to think about what impression that gives. This is two miles from my house. Um, you know, they got a little house thing. Um, you know, you got a nice little storefront, very, you know, there's no other doctor. You know, one guy was telling me he had the pain practice between the pawn shop and some other shop, rather. And if you have a rheumatologist next to you and a primary care next to you, that just helps a whole lot in terms of your patient flow and what you're going to get. Uh, they got a nice little house with steps. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, ours looks like a bunker, but at least it's not, you know, an old house or a storefront walk-in-ish kind of thing. Um, you know, we got it for the orthopedist. Think about who your last tenant was for where you are. And your lobby. What does your lobby look like? Is it cramped? Is it nice? Is it open? Is it airy? That sort of thing. Um, so what will they see? I would encourage you to think about getting a, um, uh, a mystery shopper. They've used it in retail for a long time. Get somebody. Get friends to just come to your practice and fill out the forms and sit in the lobby and have a faux interview. And then when they get back, say, you know, you can tell the staff or probably not tell the staff. And then just have them record what they see and who they see. Law enforcement's going to do that. Okay? They're already doing that. You don't wait for law enforcement to be the first mystery shopper you have. Have a friend of yours come in and just look and see what, what you know, how are people... How's the, the medical office look like? Does it look like a medical office? Does it look like something else? Are people standing in the parking lot talking? Okay, you pay, pain patients are going to 
talk to each other and kind of say, but if you have a gaggles of people, we had a pain clinic, no lie, where it was a first come, first serve. It opened at 8 o'clock, so people would get there at 6 and all barbecue out, you know, and have a little tailgating, you know, and, and be in groups of 10, all kind of talking, smoking, kind of waiting for the thing to open. Um, all by itself. They could have been a world-renowned pain doctor of any sort, but if you're in that physical environment, law enforcement's going to put a target on you, and maybe the patients are going to put a target on you. And look at your lobby. You know, are, they, are patients sleeping? Are they nodding off? Are they talking? Are they appropriate? Uh, what's going on? So look at your physical environment. A welcome letter outlines what you expect from the patient, and I encourage everybody to have a welcome letter. This is what you would bring to welcome to our practice. This is what you bring uh, we want to see a photo ID. We're happy you're going to be a patient of ours. Please do these forms. Go to the patient portal, whatever. And are you going to prescribe medications, opioids at the first visit? Do not expect opioids at the first visit. We put, and I think we bolded it and italicized it and everything else. That's a big issue that we all face. <clears throat> when to start opioids, when to end opioids. <clears throat> if you generally start opioids at the first visit, the word is going to be out, and that's going to influence the kinds of people that come to you. In our experience, it's rare to have a substantiated diagnosis for opioids and have all the risk assessment information available by the end of the first visit to start prescribing opioids, whether it's hydrocodone 5s or tramadol or whatever. Even if you have all the information and they've exhausted all the non-adjuvant, you know, all the adjuvant treatments and the physical therapy and all that stuff and you know, they've climbed that ladder completely, it may not be a good idea to start opioids at the first visit. Generally, our guys rarely, we have one doc that's known as the, Kim's here and she'll talk about one guy's the softy, you know, it's like, you know, another guy, the other one is like, I have no faith in anybody. You know, I will never prescribe opioids at the first visit. I want a lot of information first. Um, <clears throat> so generally, the more you cannot prescribe opioids at the first visit, the more that will change the patient population and be more, and it's, like I say, it's rare to go through the whole treatment process and be at that point by the end of the first visit. Oh, but I only have a few pill lifts. You know, I was at my other doctor. They only gave me one script. I've only got three days left. I'm going to go into withdrawal on the weekend. Um, can't you help me out? Um, and so if you're prescribing to prevent withdrawal, that's different from prescribing for chronic pain. It really puts you in a different relationship, and it's a different thing. If you're like, okay, let me give you some so that you won't go into withdrawal, and that's your first visit. It's different if it's an established patient, but if that's the first interaction you have is let me start opioids because I don't want you to go into withdrawal, and then we'll sort of dog paddle later, you know, uh, <clears throat> that is, you know, that is not generally not a good thing to do. For individual patients, it's a good thing to do. You know, there are some patients that really need that, and occasionally our guys do that. We have now a female doctor, so I have to quit saying our guys, our guys and gals. Um, <clears throat> but on the first visit, you can prescribe adjuvants, you can schedule injections, you can document, you get an MRI, nerve conduction studies, meet together, develop a treatment plan, but generally work your system so that that's not certainly a habit or even 50% of what you would do on the front end. So you do an initial evaluation <clears throat> just for review, and I love these sessions because you kind of go to different sessions and hear similar sorts of things. An initial evaluation would include the pain complaint, physical exam. Be sure to do a physical exam. You know, if you have a patient that says, no, they never touched me when they're up in court or in front of the medical board, that's a bad thing. A focused medical exam, uh, you know, you don't have to do complete disrobement, but... Um, you know, if it's CRPS, look at it, touch it, feel it. Uh, so do an appropriate physical exam. 
uh, scans, studies, labs. Um, and that's the pain part of the initial evaluation. Certainly, if you're considering opioids, then you want to do the psychosocial surrounding elements, doing risk assessment, doing a drug screen, drug, drug test, oral fluids test. Oral fluids test is really nice to have in your pocket for all those people that are like, oh, no, I just went to the bathroom. I can't pee. Here, put this cotton in your mouth. Um, <clears throat> uh, it, it helps. Um, get past medical records, not every record or every provider that's ever been seen, but certainly if they've seen somebody for the last one, two, three, five years and say, oh, you're closer, I want to go to you now, get those records so you know and can confirm, trust but verify what they're telling you. And then prescription monitoring information. Hopefully you've got that. There's the risk score and the risk assessment. The risk assessment is some sort of tool, and it'll give you a number, low, medium, and high. It's a three. That means this. It's a 14. That means that. That's not your risk assessment. That's a tool. It's like a lab test. A risk assessment tool is a lab test, and that gives you some data, but it doesn't fixate on that. Um, the prescription monitoring information, the drug screen, other records are going to help you with making your risk assessment, not just the score. Usually that information can raise risk. It's never going to lower it. If your risk assessment tool says 22, high risk on the SOPAR, well, then past records are probably not going to say, oh, no, I need to ignore that. So risk will often go up with other information uh, and not go down. But you need all of those pieces of information to, so you don't have to be feel bound by your risk assessment tool. Of, well, the ORT said it was low, so I guess it's low. It's like, no, use all the information. You don't have to be stuck with that. Now, there's two risks, and you'll hear that uh, hopefully in, in themes here. <clears throat> there's actually two risks. One, the traditional risk is medication aberrant behavior, the risk of the not following the treatment agreement that you've got. And it's not a contract, it's an agreement. The other risk that's always talked about and increasingly talked about is overdose. The predictors of overdose are different from the predictors of medication aberrant behavior. The predictors of overdose are being elderly, hepatic symptoms, pulmonary symptoms, sleep apnea, benzodiazepine use, alcohol use. We're not there yet. Now, some people are a fan of the Reassort. I'm not quite the fan of the Reassort. It's out there. But that's the only potentially validated tool out there for overdose risk. And it gives people points based on. And it was developed by looking at a medical record. And they then validated how many people or predicted how many people were going to overdose with that. Um, it doesn't include alcohol, which I think is a, is a big problem because alcohol is a huge factor in overdose, and it's, you know, that's not in a medical record, and it wasn't calculated. So it ignores alcohol, and that's kind of a problem. But whether you use the reassort or not, that's about the only tool you've got. But you need to assess two risks. One is medication aberrant behavior, and the other is the risk of overdose, and be talking in your record about both of those because if you say, oh, this person's high risk, they might be an addict or whatever, that there's a whole other set of are they at risk for overdose. And if you're ignoring that issue, you could be in a world of hurt if something bad happens. So you need to be looking at both. So now the risk assessment tools. So think about two risks, but there's very few tools for overdose. That's more of a clinical decision, almost like we started with risk assessment, a red flag list where you kind of check off things and then uh, make a comment in your record about where they are for overdose risk. So risk assessment, these are far too many slides, and they're for your reference when you can look at them. We're not going to go over each one of them. But there's 10 risk assessment tools. The CDC did us no favors in just mentioning three when they came out and then said, well, I don't know if they're any good anyway, and basically undercut the whole risk assessment field. 
read my thoughts about that in the Pain Week Journal article about the CDC and risk assessment, because uh, I think they got it wrong. The last one on there is a pediatric risk assessment tool. This is the only one that I know of for that. But there's nine adult tools out there, and they're all different. Okay, and you'll have snapshots of each one about how many items they are. Are they reverse scored? Reverse scored always messes up your staff because you've got to go back and forth and get some sort of template thing. Some of these are in electronic versions that some companies will sell you. Some of them are paper and pencil. We use the brief risk interview, which is a very you know, time-intensive sort of thing because we use a, a clinical interview by a psychologist for 45 minutes. And that's a lot of time spent on risk assessment, but we've had so many problems in southern Appalachia, we had to put up a, a, a good uh, barrier against drug abuse and do a, a really good risk assessment on the front end. Um, so if you look at the averages for sensitivity specificity, it's a radar, it comes from radar theory. When you look at any test that's predicting their sensitivity and you could turn up the dial and be sure to get all the risky people, and then you might over-identify risk. If you turn down the dial, it comes from you know, bombers and ducks, and if you turn down the dial so all the ducks don't look like bombers, then you might miss a bomber. So you have to balance the specificity and sensitivity of the, of the items. We started out with some of the more common tools, and I kept getting beaten up by staff that said, you miss this one, you miss this one, you miss this one. They didn't care about all the ones they got right. They cared about all the ones they got wrong, of the people that were positive for cocaine or misused meds or that kind of thing. So we had to develop some more sensitive tools in our area, and that's why we came up with the brief risk questionnaire and the brief risk interview to kind of get at that. And we may over-monitor, and we may over-test, and we may over-identify but we think that's a lot better than under-identifying and being surprised later going, oh, gee, now I'm surprised. Uh, the original soap is also very sensitive as opposed to the soap R, which has a higher cutoff level and is not as sensitive. So basically know your tool so that you know what the pros and cons are. Um, traditionally, the, the more classic models miss, they're not as sensitive and they miss medication aberrant behavior. So if you're having problems with that, you might think about adding a tool or doing something else. Um, so this talks about the, the SOAP and the ORT, um, and maybe if you ask the ORP verbally, it works better than if you hand them a piece of paper, um, which makes sense to me. Uh, and, you know, I've had primary care doctors all, oh, patients lie. I don't do any risk assessment at all. Actually, my risk assessment is I look at them. I can tell. You know, I, I look at them. I want to see their eyes because I know they're lying. And it's like, yeah, you know, you're, you're really good. I, I can tell you're Karnak and can see through them. It's like, but the literature will say that's you're better off just flipping a coin because confidence of belief does not make truth of belief. That's true in religion. It's true in science. It's just because you feel, your gut feeling doesn't make it true, no matter how tightly you might hold that belief. And if uh, regulators come in and say, what's your risk assessment tool? And you say, my gut, you're already, you know, Jen Boland's going to have a hissy fit, you know. So... <clears throat> Um, so look at your risk assessment tools and know the pros and cons. Now, some base rate data, I wish we could kind of all begin to have a system of looking at some base rate data, not patient data, but conglomerate data to kind of look at. If you look at urine drug screen numbers and kind of look at, of studies, you know, how many people fail drug screens? There's three ways to fail drug screens. You have something in there that's not supposed to be in there of a prescription drug. The prescription drug you're prescribing that's supposed to be there is not there, a negative screen, and illicit drugs. And alcohol basically should be an illicit drug if somebody's on opioids. So alcohol should be in the illicit drug category. Some people test for it. Some people don't. 
you probably should test for it. Um, so you look at overall base rates. So overall, you're unex you, know, you can get your lab to maybe crunch the numbers for you, but if your uh, inappropriate drug screen rate should be somewhere between 15 and 45%. There's, you know, if 60% if of your people are failing drug screens or 60% of your drug screens are failed, then something's wrong on the front end with your risk assessment tool. We discharge people 10% of the time. It used to be discharge meant go someplace else, we can't give you opioids, and that's all we got. Now we have a whole functional program, but we send them a letter and say, we are ending opioids, uh, but we'll be glad to give you these other treatments. Half the time they go someplace else because they want the Roxy-30s, but at least we've offered them some other treatments. And Gourlay and Height will talk about you know, discharging the molecule, not the patient. But roughly, we discharge the molecule slash patient about 10% of the time. You can look at how many letters we send out for that. So if your discharge rate is 50% or 30% or 80%, we've got a local practice. I run a tight ship. And when, you know, so I, I don't take any guff. And if they mess up, I kick them out. So he probably kicks out 50% of people. That's a setup. You know, you're, you're, something's wrong with that kind of system. If you bring people in, do the initial evaluation, maybe get a little money from the, in, the injection and then kick them out, call them for a few random pill counts. That's a great scam to get rid of patients you don't want. Call them for a bunch of randoms. They say they can't come in one day, they can't get a ride, flat tire, and then you kick them out. You know, there may be people that avoid random drug screens, but that's a great way to cleanse your system and keep you know, getting the money from the new system. So I'm not a fan of pure randoms. We do unannounced, and occasionally we'll call people in, but for cause instead of just random. Um, but looking at what your discharge rate is, um, and in terms of risk assessment tools, if you look at the different percentages of low, medium, and high, what you would expect, if you look at all the different things, and they vary widely uh, with what that happens. It it, Webster's original ORT, you know, 90% of his patients were medium to high risk. Now, every other study that's used the ORT finds that it has a much higher rate of low-risk uh, low people. Um, but you can kind of get a feel for you know, your numbers versus these numbers. How many people of your patients are low-risk, medium-risk, and high-risk to kind of have some sort of base rate to kind of look at for yourself. And then what behaviors people use, the most common things people do where they're short on pill They don't have the medicine they're supposed to have. They're short on a pill count, they lost it, it got stolen. Somehow it's not where it's supposed to be, including in their system. Um, and then they take other prescribed stuff. Illicit drugs for us is not uh, near as common. Uh, so saying no. It's hard to say, you know, prescribing opioids, you know, Steve talked about it great last night. It's a politicized, moralized issue. We're not a non-opioid treatment program. We think opioids have a place. But you need, if you prescribe opioids, you need to be able to say no. If you can't say no, either don't prescribe opioids or figure out a staff system to, to help you with that. We have, a, you know, we have one doc that's, I'm a softie, but he's arranged a bunch of nurse practitioners around him who are not softies, and they will remind him. And they're like, okay, I guess i got to do that. He's a former pediatrician, so he's like, oh, okay. So he has that warm heart, but it's like that'll get you in trouble if you're a warm heart, nice guy. You don't want a five-star on the Internet. Oh, he's the greatest doctor ever from everybody. You need like a three-star is kind of maybe what you're looking for. So you need to be able to say no and stop, um, no matter what the media people will say. If you're highly rated, no telling what that means. Um, <clears throat> Um, so, because opioids can be harmful to a subset of patients, we don't want we want our patients to succeed, and so we don't want to hurt them. Um, so, practices need to be on the same page. Now, some of you are going to nod because if 
practices, often multi-practitioner practices, not everybody's on the same page. You know there's somebody in your practice that's out there being Wild Bill and they didn't come to this thing and they're out there just giving Roxy 30s all the time and calling stuff in on the weekends or having them come by and get stuff. And then you've got to take call for them and you're like, you're what? You know, uh, you know, it's like, oh, my goodness gracious. So um, we recommend that as a practice, you sit down. Our practice had a long, arduous staff meeting, went deep into the night, but you hammer out what the expectations are so everybody's roughly on the same page. And you can have individual patients vary, but everybody, you take all the medications, certainly short-acting, long-acting, highly abusable, you know, Dilaudid, Oxy-15s and 30s, and say, are we going to do this at all for high-risk people? Are we going to do this at all for medium-risk people? Are we going to do this at all for low-risk people? And agree. Are you going to prescribe benzodiazepines ever? Are you going to prescribe carisperitol, Soma? We don't. We don't prescribe either of those. We used to. We don't. Um, it's not for pain. Go to the psychiatrist, and they don't want to do it either. How often are you going to do drug screens? You know, for low, you know, so you have a practice protocol. For low-risk people, you're going to test them this often. Are the monitoring that you have are, are the drug screen, the prescription monitoring program, checking that. We check the monitoring program every time we do a drug screen. So if we're doing a drug screen twice a year, we check the prescription report twice a year. If we're doing a drug screen every month, we check the prescription monitoring program, just so that we don't have two systems going on about what's going on. And then pill counts were mandated in Tennessee to do one every time for the opiates that we prescribe. And pill counts are a real good thing to have. Um, and visit frequency so that everybody's on the same page. And especially that last one, Jen Boland calls them toll booths, times when you sit down and reevaluate. You need to know what your MEDD is for each patient. What's their morphine equivalent at this point? And when it hits a certain amount, you stop and sit down either with the patient or with your staff or both and say, where are we at? You know, we're at 60, and instead of just keep raising it, should we get a neurosurgical consult? Should we try some physical therapy? Should we do some adjuvant? What should we be doing? But it's real easy to do dose creep and just get up there, and then you're at 140, and everybody's wondering what's going on. So you have, like I say, what Jen calls toll booths, where you stop and reevaluate. Um, treatment plan reevaluations, what psychologists often used to call them. Uh, the treatment agreement. Um, so some states just say use a treatment agreement if you get up to a certain MEDD. I think a treatment agreement uh, is due for anybody that's on opioids. <clears throat> How else are they going to know what you expect from them and what they're supposed to do? Um, <clears throat> now, there's informed consent and there's treatment expectations. And those are two different things, the treatment agreement. And like I say, it's not a contract. Um, if you call it a contract, attorneys will yell at you. Um, so there's informed consent. What are the pros and cons about being on opioids, just like a surgery? What are the things to expect? What, what are the chances that things might go wrong? What are the potential things that might go wrong? That's informed consent, and it's a legal thing. And then there's treatment agreement, which is what do you expect? You know, what, what happens if they run out of medicine? What happens if they have surgery? All those kind of things. Those are two different things. Classically, everybody puts them on one page, and you get one signature and say, good, I'm done with it. Those are two different things. And like I said, they have two different legal bases. Um, and you can put them on the same page, but just realize those are two different things. Um, and I just, I just said what that is. So with the treatment agreement, there's a lot of elements to it that should be to it. Um, so how do you do those, both of those, informed consent, treatment agreement? I've seen our notes, our drop-in notes from our staff. Oh, I educated the patient about this, and they drop in that little paragraph that says, we went over this and this and this and this. You did not. 
you know, I know that they were in and out there seven minutes, and you didn't have that big old conversation, but it's in the notes, so it looks better. And that's what we drew drop-ins for that kind of stuff, most of us do. Um, <clears throat> if you drop it in, maybe you should actually do it in some way. So do you have the checkout person do it? Oh, yeah, go over that with them on the way out, you know. Um, you know, traditionally, we hand people a, our treatment agreement is seven pages long, I think, and we hand it to them and say, Sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here, initial here. If you've got any questions, ask me. I, to, to one group, I've always thought, okay, if you come in and we put these, uh, this, we print out all my slides and just put it on the table for you, you come in and sit down and we hand you those, those packets and say, or give you the download link and say, okay, there you go, you've got it all. Thank you very much. Please sign, you know, at these, one of these global education things that you've had, that you got and that you got the download link. There you go. Thank you very much. You'd be like, what the heck? I'm not ever coming to this conference again. What kind of education is that? Okay, what do we do for our patients? We hand them a piece of paper and hope that they read it. Um, that's not education, handing somebody a document. We don't do education this way, and patients aren't smarter than us, I don't think. Why are we downloading that? We have physician REMs. We need patient REMs. We need patients to be educated about what's going on. So do you go over safe storage? Do you go over all kinds of different things? Do you give a pamphlet? I'm a bit, not a big fan of pamphlets. I think the, I saw some of the FDA is going to come out with another pamphlet because we need more pamphlets and we need to educate people about whatever it was, potential risk of overdose, what are the signs of overdose, safe storage, whatever. There's always something that we need a new color glossy pamphlet about. Um, okay. Why fly Delta? You might fly Southwest. Both of them, next time you go on a plane, when the stewardess is standing up there saying, okay, I want to go over the instructions for you. Here's how you click the thing. Look around and see how many people are paying attention. Nobody's paying attention. They're on their phones. They're in there doing things. Nobody looks at that kind of stuff. That's not as good an education as could be. Now, Delta's got these fancy little videos, and they got like 10 different versions of them. I think Southwest has got the where people can kind of go off script and do their own sort of thing, and as long as they get the basics in there, they're okay. So for Delta, you know, the little girl that's 10 years old behind me knows to look behind her because the exit might be behind her because she saw the cute little video with the little Internet guy going out the exit that way. So there's, you know, think about education and just handing somebody a document is not the thing. So a brief conversation, not good education. Handing somebody a pamphlet, not good education. It's better than nothing, and Jen Boland's going to want, if she comes looking at your records, to say, yes, at least you did something. If you're not doing anything, then you're up a creek. So what do we do? We do medication class. You're on opioids. We like you to schedule a medication class. I don't need a medication class. I've been on this medicine for 15 years. I, don't, I know everything about it. I used to be a nurse. It's like, okay, go to it anyway. It's, it's mandatory. We psychologists hate to say mandatory. It's, it's a condition of being on opioids. If you're not going to take the class, fine. We'll just not give you opioids. You can't have it either way. You've you got to have the class if you're on opioids for us. And we go over why this is real important. So let's see if I got topics. Oh, the topics are split up. So why the medication treatment is important, what to do if you have surgery, how to carry your medicines around legally. Very, patient, very few patients know how to carry it around legally. Storage of medication, uh, out, marijuana use, what's your expectation about marijuana use, and if you say you will be discharged if you use it, and then somebody uses it, you've put yourself in a corner because you just said, you will discharge them, and then somebody's going to come back later and say, it says in here that you don't allow any marijuana use, so you have to be careful about what, 
what you say you're going to do with any of these sorts of things. You know, your medicine could be discontinued is probably a better way to say it than it will be. Alcohol use, we generally do not advise patients not to drink, and we should. Um, and you should test for it. And if marijuana or if margaritas and a beer on Sunday night, and most patients hear that and say, oh, okay, sure, I'd skip my medicine if I'm at the barbecue and I want to drink a beer. No. If you have a prescription on file for us for that month, you can't drink alcohol because if we find it in your drug screen, we're going to end the opioids. It's too dangerous. There's a black box warning that says don't drink alcohol with this medicine. Um, so talk about alcohol use and figure out where, you know, are you going to ignore it? It's just like marijuana. The CDC did not really say ignore marijuana. And then they didn't mention alcohol at all, as that I remember. Um, but you need to have something in your expectations about what you expect from patients about that. When to call the practice. Don't call me at 2 a.m. and say I can't sleep. The primary goal of treatment is function, not pain relief. Your pain's not going to be zero no matter how much medicine we give you. And a lot of patients are like, really? Oh, I didn't know that. You know, I thought if we just kept going up the dose, it's like an antibiotic. We just get the dose, it'll go away. No. It's going to take the edge off. That's as, you have had patients, we've had patients that say, it just takes the edge off. That's all it does. It's like that's all it's going to do. That's as good as it gets. We've tried high-dose therapy. It didn't work. It doesn't make pain go away. So going over all those things, it saves so many conversations down the road. And we use some, instead of just medication class, here's your thing, we use some analogies to kind of help people, like... How do you know if your medicine's in a safe place? We don't say everybody has to have a lockbox or a safe. What we say is, look, here's an easy test. Take $1,000 in cash and put it with your pain medicine. If you think, oh, no, I wouldn't do that, well, then don't put your pain medicine there. Your pain medicine's worth $1,000 on the street, probably. So if you wouldn't put $1,000 cash there, don't put your medicine there. And get a loaded gun, pistol. Everybody in Tennessee's got a pistol. And they put it, put it with your pain medicine think, oh, no, kids might get it. Well, then don't put your pain medicine there. Your pain medicine is valuable and lethal. We have some people that put $1,000 in cash and a pistol on their kitchen counter, and it's like, okay. But think of it as that way. You're looking at it and saying medicine. Other people looking at it saying instant lotto winner or potentially death. Um, so they need to, and they're like, oh, okay. I'll, you know, if you just kind of reframe what their medicine is, oh, I'll put medicine with the medicine. Yeah, everybody keeps it above the sink in the kitchen up there where they can reach it. It's like, no. Yeah, I put it up high where the kids can't get it. How old are your kids? 15? Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Um, so just get education where you get patients to understand what's going on and what you expect, and that this is serious business. They get all kinds of forms. We give them tons of forms and incate forms and this and that. What's your pain? Color here, color there. And here's the treatment agreement. It's like, this is a big deal. You need to pay attention to that. So we need to elevate the education. Now, you've gone through all that, and then there's questions to ask. So you've shaped what kinds of patients are coming to your practice. You've done an assessment on them and are doing monitoring and prescribing based on their risk. Um, and you've educated them early on about what you expect for taking their medicine, storing their medicine, all those kinds of things. And you go over the poppy seeds so that you don't have to have that conversation. Yes, it's going to be positive for marijuana. Don't drink NyQuil. Don't drink ZQuil. It's going to have alcohol in it. We don't want you to have alcohol. So going over all that stuff saves so many problems on the back end where you're not having to go over it saying, oh, well, I didn't tell you on the front end. And if just putting it in a giant document is not the way you're going to tell it. Um, so invariably patients say, oh, medication class one more time to come to the clinic, and then they leave saying, oh, I learned something. Pain patients are generally very hard to please. They have low satisfaction scores on any 
you know, the, when the hospitals do those things of what departments have satisfied patients, pain's always at the bottom because you have more people. They're just unhappy for, you know, especially these days and days, all of our pain patients are unhappy because we've taken away a bunch of their opioids and cut their dose in half or a third or a tenth of what they used to be. So they're not, and they can't find a doctor and they're scrambling. I mean, there's reasons to be unhappy if you're a pain patient. Um, so, but the medication class tends to, um, they like it. You know, they, they appreciate the information and some of the knowledge and what to expect and what the practice, and that we're doing it because we care about them and we want them to succeed. It's not a punitive sort of thing. It's a help to them so that they don't screw up and they're not having to go to another pain practice and say, I got discharged because I ran out of medicine and I didn't know or I didn't call and I failed a drug screen and that kind of thing. So it's actually a helpful thing. So you've done all that, and then you get a drug screen back, and it's positive for something, and, you know, it shouldn't be. Um, some practices, we've got the one-and-done practice in our area. We had the other practice that since closed that was a three strikes and you're out. And they would use that terminology in the record. This is your second strike. Sign this form that it is your second strike. One more strike, and you will be out. It's like, really? I mean, can't you even at least get a metaphor that's better than one strike, two strikes, three strikes? Um, <clears throat> we don't recommend any of these. I think you need to look at medication aberrant behavior individually and, and figure out what to do with it. The one thing you don't want to do, and Doug Gourlay will tell you this over and over again, the only thing you can't do is ignore it. Okay, that's, that's the thing you don't do. You need to address it and show that it was in your consciousness and that you processed it in one way or the other. Now, and then Jen Bowen will tell you at the attorney, you don't have to end opioids in the face of anything. There is no medication aberrant behavior that you, the, some law is going to come down and say, no, you can't prescribe to this person on a one-time basis, even cocaine use. There are people that can continue to work with people and prescribe opioids, but you certainly need to take a lot of measures. We don't let people use cocaine but one time, and we end their opioids, but there are some people that do. And if you're in a rural community and you're the only one there and looking at your treatment options, you know, maybe there's a situation where you would want to do that. But legally, there's nothing that says you have to end opioids right now because they did that. But you need to address it. You can't just ignore it. So the questions to ask yourself and your staff, first, was the drug screen finding correct? Um, or the, the, what you think is correct? Oh, they're taking Dilaudid. I'm prescribing them hydrocodone, and they're out there using Dilaudid. Wait, no, that's hydromorphone. You're supposed to have hydromorphone from hydrocodone. It's okay. You know, so you really, either you need to know how to interpret a drug screen or your chief medical officer for the lab needs to do it or something. And your lab's the best one because they will tell you, you know, this is above cutoff, this is below cutoff, this is what to expect, this is not what to expect. But don't be wrong. We've been wrong before, and that's really a problem when you accuse somebody of something and then the lab comes back and says, oh, we made a mistake. Um, or you overinterpret, or we get records from people that have been discharged because they did something. It's like, no, this is what you would expect to find, you know, either based on when they took the medicine and it's out of their system or whatever. Just so be sure you're right before you start running around with a hatchet trying to correct the problem. I found one of those drug addicts. We know they're in there. I just need to find, oh, there's one. You know, it's like a headhunting sort of thing. doesn't need to be that way. Um, now, does the finding reflect a medically dangerous behavior? The more medically dangerous whatever this medication aberrant behavior thing is, the more quickly you should act. Cocaine's one, screaming at staff, threatening staff is another. I mean, there are some things that should take more immediate action than a finding of marijuana. 
um, might want to end it with marijuana too, but it depends on what it is. And if it's dangerous, the, the immediacy for doing something about it and changing the treatment plan is up, increased. Is it illegal? There's a difference between somebody failing a drug screen because they got an opioid and didn't, from their dentist or somebody and they didn't tell you about it, but they were legally prescribed it, versus they got an opioid from their sister or their brother or their mom or whoever family member cared enough about them to hand them that. Um, so those are two different things, uh, illegal behavior versus not illegal behavior. Uh, and some people might even differentiate going down on the street and buying it versus getting it from your mom. You know, those are kind of two different behaviors. They're both illegal, but they're in some ways different psychologically. And so how you would intervene with that might be different, whether it's illegal or not illegal. Should the patient know better? Did you tell them about poppy seeds? Did you tell them about alcohol? If you said, yeah, we went over this. If you didn't go over it with them, it's harder to bring the hammer down on them. So knowing how well you educate them. Have, basically, when people come to class, they usually leave and say, oh, I've messed up already. And, and basically, our staff gives them a pass and say, I know, we gave you a treatment agreement, but you hadn't been to class yet, so you're off the hook. Now that you've been to class, we expect you to know what you heard in that class. And that's kind of the mark of when we're really going to be on stuff. Um, so what was the education process they had at the point when they did whatever they did? And we've had some patients that were in the practice 10, 15 years, and the expectations have changed, like alcohol. We've been tighter about alcohol the last several years than we used to be. And they didn't know. They had class 10 years ago, and we didn't make a big point of that. So that's a different situation than somebody you just told last week not to drink alcohol, and then their first uh, drug screen is positive for alcohol. Um, do you think the finding, whatever the bad drug screen might be, was for pain relief or was it something else? If they said I had increased pain so I took some extra and I ran out, um, to the extent you can, figuring out why they did what they did. You know, were they trying to get high? Were they bored? Were they whatever? You know, maybe they're having a, another disc that went out, so maybe they're having increased pain. That's a different scenario. So, you know, why exactly did they do what they did? Um, it might be that you need to do a different treatment and get another MRI, do an ablation, do something else, rather than just, oh, we're going to end opioids uh, right off the bat. What risk level was the person? If they're high risk, they get fewer chances than if they were low risk. Okay? If, if, you, you know, if you knew they might be at risk for that and they do something wrong, generally then you would be quicker to end opioids on a higher risk patient than you would on a low risk patient. Were they honest about it? Did they tell you, Oh, or the, usually the drug screen person who's getting it. Oh, yeah, by the way, they heard a lot more information than the nurse practitioners do. Um, you're going to find this in my system. Did they say that? Or did you get the drug screen result back and say, oh, look, what's this? And then you have that conversation. So their honesty is a big factor. Honesty is a huge factor from the beginning. If we find patients are not forthright, you can frame it as honesty. You can frame it as accuracy. They didn't give me accurate information. It's like, yeah, they lied to me. Well, no, let's not call it lying. But they weren't accurate, and you need accurate information for whatever reason. Oh, I forgot I saw that practitioner. Um, they need to be accurate about what they're doing, and if they're not accurate, then it's much more dicey to be prescribing opioids. So were they honest and forthcoming about it? Were they not? Those are two different scenarios, and you might change your invention based on that. Um, so based on all that, how should the treatment plan change? 
Are you going to monitor more frequently? Are you going to change, give them more short-acting? going to give them less short-acting? Are you going to refer, uh, maybe it's alcohol finding? Okay, send them for an A&D assessment. Send them, make them go to an AA meeting just to see what it's like. Bring me back the chip. Um, uh, maybe they stayed up all night and they have sleep problems. Okay, we're going to refer for a sleep consult to see if that's an issue. Um, so, um, like I say, you need to have some sort of intervention, even if it's we're going to monitor closely. You know, I, one physician was like, we're going to watch them close. Okay, what does that mean exactly? I'm just going to watch them. And it's like, well, okay, behaviorally speaking, we need some sort of behavioral change. You're either going to increase the drug screen monitoring, and it shouldn't be confirmatory testing every time for every patient. By the way, please don't be doing that. Medicare and other insurances will hate it. And it's really not appropriate. Every patient doesn't need confirmatory testing on a 30 panel drug screen for everything. PCP, we need to test for, who uses PCP? Nobody uses PCP anymore. Uh, test for some common stuff. <clears throat> uh, or not many. Not, uh, we're all on the other drugs. Um, <clears throat> um, so, now once you ask a patient to do that, like do this referral, go to that specialist, that kind of thing, did they do it? You know, you give them a reasonable amount of time. Did you go see the sleep specialist? No. Next month, did you see the sleep specialist? No. I was sick. You know, and at some point you say, look, you didn't do. If they did go do it, then maybe you're more likely to continue the opioids. Um, and did you document it? Is there documentation of the finding, your thought process, I am going to continue opioids in light of this, and this is how the treatment plan is going to be changing. And a lot of people, when, when I get records, we do varying degrees of documentation at the time of the visit. You have the note, saw them, I do the note, note, note. A lot of medication aberrant behavior happens in between. You get the in-between visits. You get the drug screen back a week later or somebody calls a week later. And since it's not at the visit, a lot of times that doesn't get processed in the EMR. So you have these notes about I saw the patient, saw the patient, saw the patient, and then they're discharged. And it's like, what, you know, and if you would explain, you know, so you have a note about things that happen in between the visit. Go in, just put a note. This happened, I got this phone call, I got this result, and this is what I'm thinking, and so this is what I'm going to do, rather than just ignoring it. Um, so if you ignored the whole thing, that's not good. Um, so ask for help. We all have our pet patients. We have our favorites, and um, it helps if you kind of have input. We have an input process where the nurse practitioners weigh in on uh, electronically on somebody starts it with this is what happened this is a patient they've been here this long they got this kind of diagnosis and they've done this wrong this is what I think ought to happen goes to another two other nurse practitioners who weigh in I don't know this patient at all but based on what you're saying I would do this I know this patient real well I know they've had trouble I would recommend this and then it goes to the physician and the physician makes the final decision based on kind of their counsel of input um, so we all have our blind spots and if you're just kind of one-on-one -on -one doing it by yourself it's easy to kind of certain patients you'll either overreact and be very punitive or underreact and be too nice. Um, so have a system of input to the extent you can. If, you know, call for a consult, you know, call up one of your pain buddies at another practice and say, look, you know, I got this patient, what would you do? What do you think I ought to do? So work to decrease your self-referral percent, you know, create a parking lot and a waiting room that represents a medical practice, a good medical practice, have a welcome letter, uh, have a pra uh, practice in which opioids are rarely prescribed at the first visit, look at your drug screen rate, uh, risk assessment, low, medium, and high percentages, and what kinds of medication and behavior. So you can kind of 
you know, figure out where you are in the system and if you're sort of normative in terms of what's going on at your practice. Be able to say no or stop or we're going to end opioids. Have that spiel in your pocket so that you should have ended opioids on somebody. If you haven't ended opioids on somebody in the last six months, you probably need to up your game in that because there's probably somebody you should have stopped opioids sometime through there. And that's a hard discussion, but it's a safe discussion. You're doing it for their good. You're not being punitive and taking something away. You're helping them. You're not setting them up for failure. You're not turning them into a drug addict. You're not giving them something that's going to cause community problems or their problems. It's for a good reason. You, you know, if you've had, go back to when your kids were two or three years old, you know, and you have to take that kind of stance. Um, put significant effort into your informed consent and your treatment agreement about what's being expected. Don't necessarily just stop opioids because we want to stop that opioid abuse epidemic going on. Um, it needs to be a clinical decision and think about it rather than one or done or three strikes and you're out. Okay, so there we go. Woo, hey, I actually got done on time. So I'll be up here for questions. You all go enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. <laughs>